before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, the great, the one and only, Bill Fackenstein. Hi, mate. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you doing today? Uh, good, 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 good. All is right with the world. And we're about to have uh, an excellent conversation, no doubt, with, um, with Russell Clark, who uh, is um, a really, really smart, really interesting guy. Many people will be familiar with him, but many won't. Um, Russell uh, is the name above the door at Russell Clark Investment Management now. He previously fund called Horseman Capital. He's written some extremely provocative and very thought-provoking stuff, which you'll find out there, and, and has um, has had an extraordinary run of things. He's, he's spent a lot of time focusing on Japan, which we want to talk to him today about. Um, and I think we're also going to get into inflation and deflation. Um, so why don't we just uh, get straight to the meat of this, Bill, and, and welcome Russell to the show. I think that's a wonderful idea. Russell, welcome to the Endgame, mate. Thanks for taking the time to join us. This is uh, this is an excellent opportunity for us to have a chat with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, someone sent me uh, your podcast to listen to because it said, you know, they were talking about some of the stuff I was talking about. I listened to it. It's fantastic. Uh, so thank you very much for, for having me. Well, there's, there's, there's so many things to chat about, but I, I think what we'd love to do first, if you could, just quickly just give give the audience a little bit of your background just so they know the kind of where you're coming from because um, you're extremely familiar to many and unfamiliar to to others and so it'd be great that to give everyone kind of a level playing field to start because I think your background is interesting and very germane to the conversation we're going to have today. Okay, sure, yeah. Look, uh, so uh, I, I was born and raised in Australia and then, you know, in the sort of, you know, and then in the 91, my parents would be a good idea for me to go learn about the world so shipped me off to be a high school exchange student in Japan in 91, which is very top of the Japanese bull market. Um, and, you know, then I went back to university, did a degree in Asian studies and, and economics. Uh, you know, and then I sort of traveled around Asia for a while in the 90s doing various things. And then I started working at the very top of the dot-com bubble um, at, at UBS. Yeah, it was literally, you know, I think as Valentine's Day 2000, I started at UBS. And then right. about six months later, half the people who were there had been fired because it was just like, turn the switch off. The revenues yeah. aren't there anymore. Off they go. Um, you know, and so that was sort of my start, the Japanese bust and then the dot-com bust. So, you know, I sort of probably took that from those two experiences slightly more uh, – I want to say pessimistic, but uh, sort of cynical eye on yeah. what things could do and how they, things could be. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really bugged me when I first started out, and it's not so much now, but back in the day was, you know, people always say to you, equities always outperform bonds, and if central banks cut rates too low, you get inflation. If governments spend too much money, you get inflation, and you go, yeah, yeah, how about, but yeah, and then, you, then I'd say, well, what about Japan? Never had any of those problems. Yeah. And they go, well, Japan's special. It's different or something like that. 
and that always re- used to bug me. So I think where most people would be familiar with or have heard of me is I've always tried to incorporate the Japan experience into yeah. what how the world works. Uh, and you know, used to have a very good model for it, and it didn't work so well. Now I think um, I understand it a bit better. If anyone's going to talk about inflation, you got to be able to explain why there wasn't inflation in Japan because you know we're just doing the same things as Japan's doing. You know, yeah. and that's you know, again that bugbear still gets me. Anyway, yeah, that's sort no, of- that, you know, that, that's that's the perfect that's the perfect setup I think for this conversation because um, you know I. I, I like you. I was in Japan at that time. Um, I'm older and grayer than you, so I was actually, you know, working um, during those crazy days. And 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 look, and I I have often said that Japan was different simply from the fact that when Japan was going through its its initial, uh, I don't even call it a bust. It just kind of stopped going up and started going down. But it was it was on its own. It, it wasn't. It could do all the things it did because the rest of the world was still growing. So when people say, "Well, if Japan could do it, why can't X, Y do it?" My my answer has always been that, "Well, X, Y, Z, and A through T are all doing it at the same time now." So it is slightly different. But um, one of the things that we, Bill and I, have been trying to figure out, and and this actually has been really, I guess, the starting point for the end game, is what happens in Japan. And Bill, I, why don't I turn this over to you because this is. Ultimately, this is your question that you've been trying to frame for a long time, and I think Russell is a great person for you to put it to. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about this, Russell. So it just so happens that one of my first big, I don't know, kind of quasi-macro scores was in uh, was Japan. I had, um, I tried to short, um, uh, I had been trying to short stocks in, say, 88, and that was really impossible. And then I found some Solomon Brothers put warrants that had been stripped off of a bond issue that traded in Singapore, and they were horribly mispriced because they were just warrants. Nobody cared about them. I wasn't, you know, some market maker on the other side of my trade. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, there was a market maker, but it wasn't his book. In any case, um, I remember vividly late 89 and then nine and then, uh, um, um, 1990 and, um, the, the, the trade worked out very well for me, but I remember at the time, I, I remember it was very difficult to try to get your arms around how much debt Japan actually uh, had outstanding. And there were, you know, they, I would try to dig with my Japanese brokers and they didn't want to tell us that and all and, and everything. And then um, obviously the, they had the, the, the big epic, you know, economic and financial bust. And uh, now uh, the BOJ has managed to monetize half of the outstanding debt, if you will. And so my one question I keep asking myself is if the BOJ decided to or, uh, say to the, the Ministry of Finance, look, um, we'll, we'll just cancel these out um, and um, they maybe swap the JGBs that they own for a kind of a token, like I'll call it a perp, whatever you want to, so they can pr- pretend they have something on the balance sheet. But in fact, they would have basically monetized the debt and walked away. I, I, ask, I, I try to say to myself, what would the next move be in the FX market or the bond market or the equity market? And whenever I've tried to discuss that with people, they seem to think that, uh, that you know, all the JGBs would be eradicated for some reason. You know, that would mess up 
obviously everyone else who, who held them. But all I'm trying to get my head around is in this laboratory experiment called Japan, where they've monetized the daylights out of everything, they're the first to do it. What happens if they if their end game is is just canceling the debt? Um, so sorry for the long winded question. You can probably take that ball and run with it wherever you want. Yes. So, you know, well, let's just talk about Japan because I think that is probably the key. And it's the key is the first country into very low yields and big, big levels of government debt. Um, and to me, anyway, it's looking like it's starting to come out the other side, which I think is what will give us some really, is giving us right now some really interesting ideas on thinking about concepts such as inflation, government spending, and other things like that. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that's always weird about Japan and what used to be Japan, used to be, in my view, you could argue Japan was special, was they combined huge amounts of government debt, which was all domestically owned, with extremely large net foreign uh, positive net investment positions. So you had this combination of a country that owed a lot of uh, money to itself while at the same time lending money to everyone like crazy, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense naturally, yeah. right? Um, it, and, and that was always sort of why I always used to think Japan was special. And the way I sort of tried to, to, to square that circle of those two observations as well as low, very low yields and actually a tendency for Japan, you know, the yen to strengthen when there was a crisis was the Japanese just kept saving and saving and saving and they kept looking for places to put this money, went to JGBs and then they sent, they put, send it overseas and then whenever, wherever they sent that money would have a boom and then at some point inflation in the country that received the uh, capital would get out of hand, currency would depreciate and the money would come back to Japan and so you get yen appreciation, lower JGB yields um, and you know very bad equity markets. And in that view of the world, you know, the reason Japanese had such low yields was because uh, their capital cre- cre- kept creating crises in the rest of the world as it went in and out. And that explained the Asian financial crisis super well, had some explanation power with the dot-com bubble, had fantastic explanatory power for the GFC, so the big buyers of mortgage-backed securities, and a lot of explanatory power for the euro crisis as well as uh, the sort of China deval emerging market crisis of 2015. All of those things uh, came together really well in explaining that model. But that model hasn't really worked very well in the last four or five years. And even more amazingly for me, why I think we're in a different place is that um, when coronavirus came along, a profoundly uncertain uh, event, profoundly uncertain, you actually saw in the March of last year, JGB yields are actually finished much higher than where they started. Yeah. Right. So something had changed uh, really fundamental in the system. And the way I'm looking at it now is if you can understand why yields rose and JGB yields rose in 2020, then you can understand why this system has been so different to what we've seen before. And the thing I've come to the conclusion, and it's going to sound very strange, and it's sort of the thing that you have to talk about because otherwise people don't get it and you need like a long forum to talk about. You can't do like a Bloomberg 
one minute best idea right. chat right. just doesn't <laughs> it doesn't quite get there. Um, but the weirdest thing is it is that when I went and tried to work out why that was happening, the conclusion I came to was that Japanese food prices basically dry, dry Japanese bond yields. And so Japanese food got very, very expensive in the 90s. You were living there in the 80s and 90s. It was very expensive yep. to, eat Japan, uh, to eat in Japan. It was super expensive when I went from Australia to Japan in 91. Everything was like five times more expensive. And basically from that period on in yen terms, food prices did nothing in Japan. And what you find is that wages and food prices seem to move together. And what was weird is when I took that observation and extended to, so the other country I've lived in outside of Australia and Japan the most is the UK. And when mm-hmm. I came to the UK back in 2002, my observation was the UK was the opposite of Japan. It was the most inflationary country I'd ever, ever lived in. Like it just seemed prices used to go up all the time. Um, and so in my mind, I was thinking you could never have low yields in the UK. And yet over the last couple of years, we've seen Japanese style yields in, in the UK. But weirdly, when I look at food prices in the UK, uh, and you can go to ONS and they give you long dated things on this, bread prices in the UK have fallen over the last 10 years, right? And the last time that happened was the Great Depression, mm-hmm. right? And so the way I'm thinking about the world is, is that ever since the sort of 70s when we had a food crisis, if you look at wheat and corn and grain prices, they've been, been in a sort of structural bear market. You really haven't seen big increases. And same with meat being a sort of structural bear market, at least in relative terms and pretty flat in nominal terms. And so what that does is it then releases a pressure on wages because at the very low end, which is what we're talking about for inflation, wages follow food prices, right? Mm-hmm. And that seems a very simple observation, but intuitively it sort of makes sense to me. And so the low interest rate, low, you know, low interest rate environment, low yield environment we've been living in is really a consequence of being in a massive bear market for agricultural products and for, for farmers in general. And you then go back and look at the 70s and what you see in the 60s and 70s, and this is where it gets very interesting, is that you can get very good data in the US and it's all consistent. So there were no yeah. interruptions in World War One or World War Two, which is a problem uh, elsewhere, um, is you see that food prices were flat through to 1940. Yeah, it started to rose during World War II and then they started to increase, increase, increase all through the 50s and 60s. And then what you see is that you can then look at food relative to gold, for example. And what you can see is that by 1970, gold had become very, very cheap versus food. Right. And then, of course, when they you know, broke the link, suddenly gold prices ramped up again back to establish the old relationship. And then this is where it gets interesting. Particularly, I think you probably have a lot of gold bugs or gold bulls who listen to this broadcast, I suspect. So what's fascinating about that analysis is if you look at food inflation in the U.S. and compare it to gold, 
over the 80s and 90s, which is a period of time gold bulls never like to talk about because (laughs) (laughs) if you you read the gold research, there should be a bear market in gold. (laughs) And whenever there's a bear market, it's a paper conspiracy or someone's come out and it's a a trap, you know. It's like, okay, yeah, but a 20-year trap is like longer than most fund managers survive in this industry. So, you know, that's not really something that's so useful to me. Um, <laughs> but what you see is that, you know, gold got too extended versus food prices and then basically they caught up again. So that by 2000, by 2000, the gold price looked very attractive again and then it took off again. And mm-hmm. weirdly, and this is probably going to really cause you to your comments page to explode and you'll never invite me back again. The implication now is that gold is, is, is probably the least attractive commodity and the least attractive asset. Because if you look at gold versus wheat or, you know, yeah, wheat's a good one. You know, it's so expensive and can, there's nowhere for it to go but down or at least sideways like it did through the 80s and 90s. Um, but it does imply, and this is, again, where it gets really interesting, is going back to why did JGB sell off is what you're starting to see is that under the influence of Chinese food prices, which are now more expensive than Japanese food prices for some areas, Japanese food inflation is starting to increase. And and what that's put doing is starting to create more a wage pressure and more inflationary pressure that's been disappeared for the last you know, 20 to 30 odd years because food prices have been on a downward pressure. You know, yeah. everyone says, oh, look, government's spending, going to have inflation. It's like, well, there's a lot of counter examples to that. You know, oh, interest rates are low, we're going to have inflation. There's a lot of counter examples to that. But there is no counter example to, oh, if the price of bread doubles overnight, you will see wage increases coming through the system. You will see yeah. minimum wages increased and you will get generalized inflation. You know, and it's a much more powerful model than, than what I hear elsewhere. Um, and I find it very intriguing and it, it, and it's a sort of long cycle stuff that you, people forget. I mean, I think most people have forgotten what it's like to, unless you've been in like a Brazil or a Russia or somewhere like that in the last 20 years, people forget, you know, what does it, what does it mean when suddenly the price of bread doubles in a year Yeah. or milk, milk's another one. Milk in the UK is super cheap. It's been a pound for, you know, that two liter thing for as long as I can remember now, you know, how's that, what if that changes, then I think we're in a different world. And I think the possibility of that is quite strong. Well, let me ask you, because it's such a fascinating, and as you say, it's a very simple um, comparison to make and study to do, but it, it makes so much sense. I mean, we, you know, we had obviously uh, a broad example of this precise phenomenon with the Arab Spring back in 2011, it seems like such a long time ago now. And that was all about food prices. Um, but when you when you look at this stuff, uh, what are the signs that you see when when this is about to turn? Because what you know, we're seeing a lot of commentary now that the, the dollar's weak, therefore commodities are going higher. And whether it's it's base metal commodities or food prices, commodities in general, which have underperformed equities for such a long time now appear to have made a bottom, whatever that means. And, and within the context of this discussion, it perhaps means less. Um, but when you look at that and you look at those previous studies you've done, were there any telltale signs that you could point to in most uh, cases that, that 
heralded the start of a turn in that dynamic? Yeah, I've, the the problem the problem is I think with very long term analysis is that the world has changed so much. I mean, China used to yeah. be so unimportant, um, and when I think about so if I just talk about exclusively about the food, because um, I think it's the important one, because this is the other thing about commodities and inflation is that if you were a Martian or a, a new MBA, 24-year-old MBA, uh, and, you know, and you said, look, in the 70s, oil price up and we had, went up and we had inflation, they go, well, oil price went up in 2000s to 2010 and bond yields did nothing. So your analysis is incorrect, you know, right? So... Looking at other commodities doesn't seem to relate to interest rates very strongly. Um, so uh, the other, what I was thinking, particularly on the food side, is you know why would we get such a strong or long bear market in food? And one of the observations is sort of two observations that come to mind. Now, the first one is basically we ended uh, socialist or collective farming farming in the eighties and nineties, which unleashed huge productivity gains. In, and also in India, people forget India was quite a socialist and still quite a socialist nation. But you had this huge green revolution in those nations. And now Russia is a big exporter. You're Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, big exporters. So that could be one one factor that's driven that. Yeah. Um, the other one, and this one's, uh, this one's very uh, intriguing, but I don't know what to do with it because I, I don't know what it means. But... Essentially, global warming has meant that a lot of land has now become arable, uh, particularly in the sort of wheat belt in the northern hemisphere. So places like Canada uh, and northern USA, for example, have 30 more days of uh, winter crops to grow than they did previously. And so we've been in this cycle where warming, global warming, has actually kept food prices lower. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, that creates this sort of this dynamic, which, you know, has been very good for food. Now, so, you know, the, the reality of it, when I think about more, and again, if you're looking at like uh, food spikes, the UN FAO do a good sort of food indexing, which goes back to 93. Um, and in it, you have three spikes. One was 96, one was 2007 and 2008. And the third one was 2011, and that's been downwards since then. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed is like 1996 was before the Asian financial crisis, 2007 financial GFC, 2011 the euro crisis. And it, what, what it strikes me as if you're trying to connect food into financial assets, um, it's very hard to escape the um, observation that most financial markets are almost like Ponzi schemes, especially with bond yields. It's like, okay, yeah. Bond yields gone lower. I'm going to refinance. After price go up, we're going to refinance. Um, and governments love doing that, you know, because you know, I know a lot of people, you know, talk about high property prices and say, "Oh, income inequality is terrible." But no government's going to vote for low property prices or even consider that as a, a priority. But if they start going out in the street and everyone's going, "Hey, why is my, you know, why is my loaf of bread twice as much as it used to be?" Yeah, that changes it, and then. So what you notice is anything that's a sort of Ponzi scheme financial deal seems to end when the food price goes up. If you think about it, it is literally taking money from people's uh, wallets when they have yeah. to pay more. And it's, it's not an expense you can avoid. Unlike 
you know, a rising oil price, you can sort of avoid that for a while and minimize. Food is very difficult to do. And so, yeah, and on food, it's it's random as well. It's it's commodities like oil, natural gas, copper, cooking coal, steel are actually super easy to analyze. Uh, very, very easy to analyze. Demand and supply, so supply is very predictable, while demand is the tricky part normally. What I find with ags is the opposite side. Demand is super predictable. Supply is very right. random. So it's a different to all the other ones. Has no easy way of uh, there's no easy way to pick it out. Well, let me ask you, because um something you said there struck me and I've been thinking about it as you as you were talking. Um and that's this idea that uh it's it's when bread gets unaffordable that people start to get agitated and start to put pressure on governments and that leads to wage increase and that and that makes all the sense in the world to me but what we have at the moment um because of those government policies because of that 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 ponzi style financing loop that we've had for decades now you have a general level of dissatisfaction that is kind of just there people are dissatisfied mainly because of the wealth disparity that's created but it feels as though they're they're probably ready to become upset, and I think we've seen a lot of this in the last six months. Um, it's not going to take what it used to take in terms of food prices to to cause the kind of angst that is going to force change and force pressure to be put or brought to bear to bring wages higher. Does that make sense, or am I kind of getting putting the cart ahead of the horse? No, absolutely. I think what is, if if you want, you know, to take that sort of analysis and do, you know, have an interesting, try and look at it in an interesting way. So, you know, what, where we see food inflation at the moment is China because they had some problems with their uh, pig herd, African swine food. I'm probably sure you've had someone talk about, but, you know, pork prices and they eat mainly pork in China of, you know, four times US prices. So food prices have gone up a lot already in China. And what you notice is because food is very difficult to control, you know, there's no easy way of suddenly producing a lot more food. You have to give it time, you know, six, seven months, right? What's interesting is in the Chinese, you know, the observation of the Chinese government is as food prices went up and there's nothing they can control about, control of that, they have been trying to control the prices of things that they can. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So they started to restrict property markets, for example. Uh, they have been pushing up interest rates, allowed their currency to appreciate quite dramatically to try and lower the cost of, of imports. Um, intriguingly, and this is where it gets very interesting, and this will be, uh, so this may redeem myself for saying something bearish about gold, <laughs> is that <laughs> I have to try hard. It's a tough audience. But, uh they start going after the cartel and monopoly operators who keep prices higher. So you've seen Alibaba has started to come under real pressure from the authorities in China uh, because, you know, like I said, when they when prices of things they can't control go up, they control the prices of things that they can. Yeah. And actually, I think the interesting thing from an investing perspective is the reverse is true too. So when food prices are very low, they're very happy to let prices of other things go up if that makes sense, because they want to try and offset that deflationary pressure through asset inflation. So you get a very simple investing model, which basically says 
you know, when food prices are low or falling, you know, be bullish or, you know, get into speculative assets. Uh, and if pre- food prices start rising, you know, get out of speculative assets, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, it seems an interesting way of thinking about it. certainly matches up with the 70s yeah. uh, and the 2000s. Um, so, you know, it create, creates a very interesting outlook for asset markets. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, obviously if wheat slash bread prices rise and, and that's an indicator of other food inflation, that can certainly or has certainly precipitated inflation in, in your viewpoint. Um, but it, it, it strikes me that that can't be the single, the only precondition in other words, to say it differently, if we don't have bread prices going up, we can't have real inflation, um, especially when you tie it to wage growth, when we're legislating increases in minimum, minimum wage all over the place here in the States without bread prices going up in the first place. So, I mean, are, do you really mean to say that bread prices are, are the only single indicator or is it is that just a, a lead pipe cinch when that happens, you get inflation? But are there other paths to get there in your in your view? So this is where it also gets intriguing. So the moment we have two, so there's two lines of thought I've gone on this. One is that um, is that wages and food prices are very highly correlated, and they almost maybe even drive each other. So as the wages of farm workers or other things go up, food prices match that as well, um, and so they become. Like you remember back in the 70s, you had the uh, price-wage spiral that they used to talk about. Um, and it always, you know, for me, was always uh, the, one of the things I always found amusing about the inflation argument was, you know, when you looked at like emerging markets like India, they never had any problem generating inflation. And mainly right. that's because before every election, the government raised wages at 20%. You know? And so, you know, talking about minimum wage, you know, if, if central banks, you know, say inflation is good and that's what we should do, you know, governments could create inflation tomorrow. They could just say, right, minimum wage goes up by 10% every year for the next five years and public servant wages go up by 10% every year for the next five years. And there you have your inflation, right? Um, but we've been in this mindset that inflation is bad and have adopted sort of dis- disinflationary policies ever since Reagan and Thatcher came to power. Um, and, you know, but they've been, you know, and so it's very difficult to tease out the correlation or causation of that. Um, but, you know, it does seem to me that sometimes you get a, if when you have like such huge in- income inequality, all you need is a spark mm-hmm. to drive that change. Um, and I think definitely rising food prices would be, would, would do that. And to talk about minimum wage, you know, so as you can tell, I've become a little bit obsessed by food prices <laughs> over the last year or so because it just struck me as such an interesting idea. I tried to look at the U.S. and its minimum wage, and what we were able to do is we were able to get the price of a Big Mac going back to the 60s, right? And then we compared it to the minimum wage. So if the minimum wage was being paid in, in Big Macs, where would the minimum wage be today or should be today if it was right. consistent? So back in the 60s and 70s, you could buy three Big Macs with your minimum wage, right? Today is about one and a half, more or less. 
You know, so you basically have seen, yeah, and that to me is quite damning because people on minimum wage tend to buy Big Macs. Right. So you basically over the last 40 years, you've been saying to them, yeah, you keep doing the same work, but you're going to get half a burger less, you know, half as many burgers as you used to get. Um, and so using the Big Mac measure, minimum wage in the state should be 15 bucks already, uh, a minimum. And probably if it went back to the sort of 70s type levels, you know, you'd be more in the 20, which is sort of what you see in, in Western Europe. I mean, we've seen this swing from labor to capital. It's been, it's been a very obvious swing and a very prolonged and profound swing. Um, and, and I think we've had plenty of periods where we've thought maybe that pendulum is going to swing back the other, by the way. We've seen kind of little hints of it, but nothing really consistent because at this point it feels as though to keep what has become the system together, it almost requires that that dynamic be perpetuated that because if we if we if we take away from capital to give to labor what it does is it it just dr- it will dramatically reduce asset prices risk asset prices will have to fall considerably so you know is is there a way to do that without pain is there a way to gently redress the balance because it seems to me like a, an incredibly difficult landing to try and stick yeah i mean it, it's i don't know it's a tricky one because you know when i try and look at you know, financial history, you know, if you go back to sort of the Great Depression and the Great Depression, food prices were falling, but at that time, wages were free floating. Yeah. So wages were falling with food prices, which sort of, you know, for me, reinforces this idea that wages and food are the same thing. And basically until FDR came in and instituted uh, a minimum wage, right? And that was basically what stopped it. And so I think your know, policymakers in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s were like, okay, Great Depression, super bad. We're going to avoid that. And so their policies were all geared towards constant, you know, full employment and rising rising wages, which then had this loop that fed back into the food and other commodity prices, and that was considered bad. So they've been trying to find this middle way between them. Uh, and I think the, the way I understand it, the way I'm thinking about it, is like. If I was a central bank, and this is again, this is probably going to, this is where I'm going to get the negative comments going back up again. Don't worry, right? It's a friendly crowd. Don't worry. Uh, well, you say that. I've seen some of the comments on some other websites. Well, listen, just just, but, just, um, just just don't mention Bitcoin, okay? <laughs> just keep it gold. The gold guys are, uh, are, are less extreme. <laughs> um, so the way I'm sort of thinking about, if I'm like a policymaker, right? And so you look at like. You know, if you look at the trend rate in inflation, let's say in Japan, where food inflation was ramping up in the 70s, so in the 80s, and basically it's been flatlining since the 90s, that looks like the Great Depression, right? You know, and so you're seeing there going, you know, the underlying trend of food, which is the only consumable everyone eats every day, mm-hmm. is flatlining. That's like the Great Depression. We don't want the Great Depression. We've got to do the very opposite of that, Right. But they don't have the power to raise minimum wages. All they have the power to do is cut interest rates. And so in some ways, they're probably being justified in what they've been doing. Um, I didn't used to think that way. I used to think they were crazy. But, you know, if you if I was there and your two, you know, main task is to avoid the Great Depression and avoid the 70s, right, so great deflation and the mm-hmm. great inflation, and you're seen there and you just see, 
you know, the core inflation, just doing this. All right, you go out and you try and promote inflation, whatever you can, while getting no benefit from the government because the governments are all not raising public servant wages, not raising minimum wages, not doing anything to promote inflation. So central banks have been fine by themselves, you know, in many, many ways to create it. And they've been doing all they can with what they've got. But the government hasn't been playing ball because there hasn't been the political will to, you know, change this this environment. And you've got to say, if you look at the two most responsive democracies in the world, which is the UK and the US, it's very difficult to portray the right-wing governments now uh, as being, you know, Reagan-type, small mm-hmm. government-type guys. So the politics has changed. So I think, you know, the idea of rising wages is certainly there. It seems at the moment uh, the US is doing it via stimulus bills. Uh, I don't know how long that can go on. It seems to me at some point something's got to give, um, you know, one way or another. And, you know, the I think at the beginning, you I think Bill was talking about cancelling debt. I mean, the much more simplistic way uh, is that if wages rise enough, if nominal wages rise enough, nominal GDP will rise enough to make the debt numbers look fine. You know, so you just need nominal wages to but, go But back up. to that question, I would love to hear how you think through the logical ramifications. I know we're speculating. If they chose to, you know, turn the JGBs they own into a perp of some sort, whether it's now or down the road, would the world change at all? Or would, it, would the people just shrug and say, yeah, we knew that, no big deal? I'm not sure if they they do purse. It's just that you know, it's just be. I think yields would be kept capped, but weight inflation would be super high. But it'd be if it, if it was in food, which I think it is going to be. Um, and what you see, what I've seen is that all food is connected. So you might think corn is different to wheat, but what's happening is farmers are substituting wheat for corn now for feed because it's so much cheaper, and that's tying up the wheat market. So what, you, what I think you'll see is that, you know, be a bit like the 70s really where asset holders just get burnt and you just want to be, you just want to be very long commodities, you know, um, and that just seems to be like, for me, the most simplest observation. What I think is going to be intriguing, um, what I think will be really intriguing is is whether the lessons from the 70s not the lessons, but the example of the 70s will be repeated, and there are signs it will be, is that countries that have a history of hyperinflation, uh, so like Japan, China, Germany, um, will they tighten monetary policy to allow their currencies to appreciate, to alleviate the pressure of rising food prices? I, I, my guess is they will, to be honest with you. Um, you know, that is my, my guess, is that they'll do that. And interestingly, so again, coming back to sort of circle around back to Japan um, analysis. So, you know, we talk about, you know, talking about debt monetization in, in, in Japan, but, you know, like one of these other weird things about Japan, at the same time they're spending loads of money and running up government debt, they're building up the world's biggest chunk of foreign reserves, right? How does that make sense? doesn't make sense, you know, but you don't, no one wants to think about it because, like, you look at it as a junior analyst and it's illogical, I don't understand it. And then, of course, you know, oh, I'll just buy NASDAQ. That's simpler. I don't need to understand that, right? Let's forget about thinking about that. But then, again, if you take it, 
when I look at Japanese foreign reserves, they were unknown in the 70s and 80s. In fact, foreign reserves outside of gold were unknown until you know, the 90s. And actually, Jap- Japan only started to buy foreign reserves when they started to have food deflation. Because again, the central bank seen they're going, uh-oh, food deflation, that's like Great Depression. We need to do something. So they start buying treasuries and the dollar like crazy to get the yen to go down. It didn't work, of course, but that's what they're doing. The flip side of that, of course, is if you have food inflation, you stop buying treasuries. Now, which country has stopped buying treasuries in the last couple of years? Yeah, China. China. Yeah. And its currency is going up. It's a complete change in the relationship of the currency and foreign reserves. A total change, right? And again, it fits back into this idea that food, because it, it, it sounds so ridiculous to say food's this big deal, but actually all we are is what we eat. You know, you know the food, <laughs> we are all just basically food. And places like Japan used rice as money up until World War II, more in the remote parts. And, like, and, and, there's, and there's any sort of basic uh, knowledge of words will tell you salary is, comes from salt, right? The Romans yeah. used to get paid in salt. You know, and it's a very, uh, it, it seems to have so much great explanationary power. Uh, it just seems to make sense to me. But I think, you know, to answer your question, Bill, I'm not sure. I think food and wages are correlated, but I don't know which way causation goes. Russell, one one thing that that jumped out at me there when you talked about those those countries that um, ha, are prone or have been prone to hyperinflation, um, and obviously there's there's a big one in the middle there when you talk about them having to tighten monetary policy and be and being able to do that is Germany, obviously, because now they're not German anymore; they're part of the EU, and so that means that whatever they want to do, while yes, they are the biggest gorilla at the table and can probably shove things around what they have with them now are a bunch of countries hanging on to them that are absolutely unable to tighten monetary policy because it would it would tip the whole boat over for them you know in the southern european countries so what 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 difference do you think that makes uh does it increase pressure on the eu in, in what is a fragile time for them or is it something germany will ultimately have its way with that if needs must so again, this is where it gets super, again, you know, when I've looked at it through these fresh eyes and this fresh way of thinking. So I started looking at Greece because Greece for me is the most non-EU member of the right. EU. It's, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, everyone else, in, everyone else in Europe makes sense except for Greece. It's always been a bit special. So I started looking at food inflation in Greece and it is incredible is around 2012, food inflation in Greece just disappeared, just didn't exist anymore. So bread prices started to fall. Now, you know, what people will say is that's because no one had any money. I, I, I get that. But all I'm saying is that this same idea of suddenly food prices falling, you know, and food prices falling is like a tax cut, really, for most people. So what is intriguing is that the conditions that you've seen in countries that we would normally you know, consider superinflationary have become very Germanic um, from this sort of perspective. And so, you know, I, would, I wouldn't be that surprised to see, you know, the euro, you know, trade like the old Deutschmark. 
certainly if Sterling can rally like it has, um, you know, the Euro can rally a lot more. Um, and I think, you know, I've always been, so, you know, when I started out my investing career, I was a, you know, a, a EM investor to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I used to see the amazing things that you, EU used to do with Eastern Europe. Um, you know, which is why I was never, I never quite really understood the negative press that EU got in the UK, uh, as being this sort of repressive conspiracy driven organization. Um, when I sort of looked at the freedom they generated in Eastern Europe, because Eastern Europe has different issues to the UK, different history. Sure. That's fine. But, you know, I've never quite, uh, you know, really got, you know, never really made a lot of sense to me. But I can't help but notice that, you know, the EU has done a fantastic job in, you know, modernizing and industrializing huge parts of, of uh, Europe. And the other thing that uh, I wrote about this a while back, um, but what I find fascinating is that if you look at the relative wages of somewhere like Poland or Croatia to Italy, the the gap has narrowed so much. I don't think the the accession of Eastern Europe to the EU, I think, created real pressures on Italy because mm-hmm. Italy was in the middle. And I know, I know, my wife used to help move factories from Italy to like Hungary and places like that. That's not happening anymore because Eastern Europe doesn't have labor. Uh, and wages are rising rapidly. So for me, Europe does look a lot like more like a, a Germany uh, and a Germany that can, you know, raise interest rates and let currency appreciate. Um, and I think Southern Europe will be fine, to be honest. I don't think it's a, I think, I think people overestimate the weaknesses of Southern Europe. Russell, how has this changed because I mean, this really is a whole new framework to look to look at the world through a whole new lens. So, how has this changed the way you invest? Because your your investing style was was very contrarian for a long time. You you were outspoken and you 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 held a set of principles that um, were very different and set you apart from the rest of the world. So, but how has that changed the way you do what you do, the asset classes you look at, and the kind of mix that you that you get involved in now? Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, the, you know, the classic way I used to think about things is like, okay, here comes trouble. You, you can right. buy JGB and you can buy yen. And, you know, and I used to have, and, it, and the sort of old model about Japanese capital flows going in and out created some very easy um, sort of maxims or mottos that you could use. So, you know, the, the, the classic one I used to say was, you know, you want to short what the Japanese are long of. Which for anyone with you know gray hair sounds hundred percent true. Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and the thing is, you know, what is intriguing about that is so, you know, you know, being taking the ana- you know that analyst and uh, analysis further, and what I find very interesting, and you know, it's going to have some work coming out on this, um, which I find unbelievable, but you know, we started looking at, you know, what were the sort of relative things between Japan and the rest of the world that have that were extreme and now have changed. And the one thing that I find fascinating is that back in 91, Japanese farmland cost six times more than U.S. farmland. It sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, six yep. times more. Yeah. 
Japanese farmland is now cheaper than US farmland. Yeah, that, that's amazing given how little of it there is. Yeah, exactly. And they're importers of food. So the farmers get protected by both transport costs and, and tariffs. And I'm thinking, okay. And so what you saw is like back in the 70s, they were close. Japanese farmland was a bit more expensive. In the 70s, US farmland went up a lot and then dropped off uh, with Volcker and Reaganomics. Japanese farmland kept going until this sort of early 90s and then it has fallen cons- fallen every year since 1991. Right. Every year. Now, until recently, I would have said, you know what's going to happen next is the yen is going to go to 50 and Japanese farmland will get more expensive again. But what we've seen has been something very different is that, yes, yen has strengthened a little bit against the dollar, but actually, you know, agricultural producing countries like Australia, uh, Canada, you know, have seen their currencies appreciate quite mm-hmm. a lot. And so... I'm starting to think that the underlying driver of deflation in Japan is coming to an end. And so I would say until relatively recently, recently, I would have told people never to, you know, you, you just own JGBs, never own the stock market. And that had been you know, pretty true for a very long time. Yeah. Even with, you know, corrodonomics or no, sorry, hubonomics, that was pretty much JGBs did fantastically well. You know, I never owned Japanese banks. I'm starting to think the world is beginning to turn and like the most value of value of value assets might be interesting. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And it's just, you know, that's life. Life's a cycle. And I think the food cycle is so long. There's no one left alive investing, maybe other than Warren Buffett, who's invested during the up food cycle, which makes me think maybe that's why I bought the Japanese trading houses. Yeah, no, it's it's a very good point. Back to my original question, though, Russell. I want to get back to the structure of, of the fact that the BOJ owns these JGBs. Now, they can just let them sit there on the balance sheet at the same level forever. They can swap them out, as I suggested. They can increase it. And, and so what I'm just curious about is if they swap them for something else, would it matter at all? And if so, how? And you know, it, it may not even matter because they've de facto done it. But I look at Japan as a potential laboratory experiment for what other central banks may try to do. So it's not really just a question about Japan. It's a theoretical finance question about what would happen if a government got away with monetizing all of its debt. I know what most people's knee-jerk response would be. But here in Japan, we're getting to see they've gone down the path to where they could practically do that. So my question is, is sort of an end game to what the central banks have been able to do. Do they do that and everyone lives happily ever after? And if that's the case, why wouldn't everyone do that? And why has no one ever done that before? And it, anyway, that's why I keep coming back to this point, because I think it matters to everything. I, I think your points about food inflation are, are terrific, and I can certainly see how things play in that direction. But, but back to the hand that we have about what these central banks are doing. Do you have a feeling one way or another about what would happen if, if they proceeded to do that? So uh, the JGV market is a fascinating market. Uh, and we, you know, I have, you know, over the years have made a lot of money in JGVs, like a lot. Um, you know, so, you know, I'll tell you, so one thing you should remember about JGVs is foreigners don't own them, okay? So, you know, when I went to buy them, 
you know, and I've bought a lot of bonds in my life, uh, treasuries, bonds, uh, Spanish bonds, Irish bonds. You know, I've been a massive bond bull until very recently. And normally when you buy a bond, it's no problem. And then when we bought these super long day JGBs uh, back in, you know, so 2015, 16, you're like, yeah, we bought them. And then we got this call saying, oh, the moth needs you to prove you're actually a, a reputable owner of JGBs. So we had to send in all these documents. Wow. <laughs> it's a true story. I mean, I was like, and as soon as they said that to me, I was like, I got to buy more of these because no right, one owns right, these. Right. Right. No one owns them. And, right. you know, they were uh, fantastic. Um, you know, and I think we nearly bankrupted a certain brokerage, but it doesn't matter but we, because like we just, we made so much from them. And so the thing about Japan is that foreigners don't own them, Right. Foreigners do not set the price of JGBs, right? So all the JGBs are owned domestically and in the financial system. So when you start thinking about how do they get rid of the JGBs, the first thing you know is they're going to do it in a way that does not bankrupt the financial system because turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Right. It's that simple, right? right? It's very right. different, very different when the bonds are owned by foreigners. Then the, the answer is always the same you know, devalue the currency like crazy, right? But the Japanese do not have that type of setup. They own their their own market. Europe is in a very similar position. Right. Basically, negative rates mean there are no foreigners in your bonds as a rule, right? Okay, so I'm not sure how they resolve it, but they will somehow. What I think is far more interesting uh, for both you guys and, and probably for your listeners is that when you look at, uh, you know, when you look at things like net international investment positions or BIS data or other stuff, Japan for the last 30 years, 30 years has basically been the supplier of capital to the U.S. on a, a scale that has never been, you know, no one's ever seen. Europe has caught up in the last 10 years. So what you've seen is, is Japan and Europe have just sent capital to the states like crazy. And that's what the whole point of negative rates has been. You know, they've been trying to get capital out of their country, get their currencies down to try and promote inflation. Well, I, I worry about the states is that if, if when they start getting inflation back in Japan and in Europe and they stop sending their capital to the U.S., right, what, what happens then? The U.S. doesn't save anything. I mean, you know, it's always just incredible how easy it is to get 20000 bucks of credit card debt and on top of your student loans on top of and then your healthcare bills and uh, it's just it, it's i found it incredible and you look at the data and like i said the telltale sign is that china has stopped buying treasuries i know russia stopped buying them ages ago but you know, you've got basically east asia so that's a you know basically japan korea uh taiwan china and then singapore you know the big chunky buyers and europe's sort of been helping out and so what I think is a more interesting thing is that if you start getting inflation coming through in East Asia, right, these guys are going to be like, oh, okay, we don't want to keep our currency weak anymore. And you're already seeing that. Taiwan dollar, new all-time high. Renminbi strengthening massively. Singapore dollar strengthening. Uh, you know, the Taiwan dollar is the real standout one. Uh, but, you know, you start in Renminbi strengthening because basically they're saying, you know what, you know, now we've got some real inflation. We're happy to let our currency appreciate. 
And so, you know, the 70s type, type thing where, you know, dollars really weak and capital gets expensive to, see, to, to me seems way more of an issue. Uh, with a JGME market, I suspect if, if laying the yen strengthen is not enough to create deflation or keep inflation in, in check in Japan, um, they might even start raising rates before they you know, put the bond mark, bonds back out there. Because the way I'm starting to think about the world, when, you, when you're a fiat currency, so when we first went to fiat, the initial experience was fiat currency generates inflation, guaranteed, no problem. All we got to do is lift, raise and lower interest rates, right? That was what we all believed. And then inflation became too much, so we all believed high interest rates, low government spending, that creates deflation. And we believed that to a lot 10 years ago, and then we basically got low interest rates, massive government spending, but no inflation, right? So our way of thinking about how fiat currencies work has has been wrong. We've had to you've got to think of a different way of thinking about it. And I just don't I don't think you know you're gonna see, I think somehow at some point, you know, we're gonna just see wages increase, nominal growth will pick up, and the debt will get repaid, just like UK consoles got repaid with a severely debased, you know, debased uh, currency or, you know, in real terms. I mean, that is a real mystery for me at the moment. And the real scary thing is, why is anyone buying corporate debt? Right. <laughs> You're not getting inflation protection. You're not getting default protection. You, You're not getting a coupon either. <laughs> it's bonkers. It's the perfect example of return-free risk. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Um and so that's where I look at, and I think, you know, this is, this, that is a time bomb waiting to happen. And everyone knows it's a time bomb waiting to happen, which is why the Fed's saying we're not going to do anything for three or four years. But what I'm saying is I don't think it's in their hands. And so what I find really interesting is that um, the last year or two have had this sort of, I'm going to talk about food again. Like the guys at the office tell me I should stop talking about food so much. It's, it makes me sound like a raving lunatic, but it's very interesting because what you've seen in China is they had African swine flu and also they handled the virus better. So food prices have already gone up. So China is ahead of the curve. Now they started to buy corn and grain like crazy. And I can go into more detail, but I'm not going to bore you. But stocks are going down. But what's happened is that grain prices in the rest of the world are starting to rise but meat prices have gone down, okay? And the reason for that is that the premium meat gets sold at restaurants and places like that, and there's been no demand for that. So the farmers have been dumping, mm -hmm. they've been dumping this excess stock. So what that means is that the current grain meat prices are super negative. So Western farmers in the US and Europe are actually growing less meat. Okay, and you know it's about it's like an eighteen month cycle. So what you've got now is you've got the Chinese prices four times U.S. prices. They're importing it like crazy as well, turning up in the export data, massive imports. So at some point you're going to see things like pork and beef, maybe chicken, but not so. You know, chicken's not so problematic, but you're going to see suddenly like a hundred percent jump in the price of pork and beef. 
and then we can see what happens. Do you get what I mean? But, you know, at the yeah, moment you've got this disconnect. I mean, Russell, because what occurs to me with this is is um, is very interesting because you've got this now, this, this self-reinforcing loop where commodities are low, food commodities are low, the price is starting to turn. All of these countries want to generate inflation. All these currencies are going to depreciate, but they can't all depreciate against each other. They can only appreciate uh, all depreciate simultaneously against things like, guess what, food and, and agricultural commodities and base metal commodities. I mean that, and that has been, you know, f- for me that that commodities equities chart um, has been one that I've kind of kept pinned above my desk now for for a year or so because it's 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 been at such extremes and it is starting to turn. So so how how do you play this? If you're an investor looking at this and and seeing this swing, which I think more and more people are starting to acknowledge that maybe we are even if we don't see the return of inflation just yet in the headline numbers, we're at a point in time where we are starting to see the return of um, or, or the, a turn in the charts of these commodities. So how how do you play that? Is it is it a simple case of just getting long a basket of commodities? Is it is it a relative game? Is it going to be food over metals? Is it going to be short gold against an entire basket of commodities? What's the best way of playing this? Do you think? So this is where it gets tricky because you know we've got like uh, it's a cycle that you know, like I said, maybe except for Warren Buffett, most of us have never yeah. been through or seen. And so the problem, you know, the other problem I've got, and this is quite it's quite a big problem. Um, is like I said earlier on, when you look at food prices, so we've been in a you know, food bear market you know, since the 1980, basically. But you have three spikes, 96, 2007, 2011, and it basically destroyed financial markets. Yeah. And so what we're starting to see is food prices starting to go up again. And, you know, you, everyone's super bullish, bullish EM, you know, let's get long. And yet, very quietly, uh, Chinese property stocks have been in the bear market, mm-hmm. right? And Chinese property stocks, you know, Chinese construction is 50% of demand for copper, same for iron or all these other things. And so, you know, yeah, I have this slight fear that, you know, industrial commodities may not be the place to be. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Same with gold, because actually the policy response to food destroys, like I said, they control the price of commodities that they can when they can't control inflation. The, the, the commodity prices they can't control are ramping up. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And certainly when we look at the big driver of copper, of course, is this sort of you know new green deal that everyone's talking about. But, you know, that is government money. You know, that's government pushing that. You know, the finances conditions start to tighten, the world starts to tighten, you know, you get a different market, a different market. So one of the fears I've got is that, you know, BHP Billiton, some Australians, so BHP Billiton's like my grandma in the stock. Everyone you know, knows you, it, yeah. You get told, yeah. never sell it, right? BHP Billiton lost 90% of its value in the 70s, right? I don't know why. I just know that you can go on to Bloomberg and you can bring up his share price, the Aussie Aussie line, yep. and it collapsed through the seventies, even though that was a raging commodity bull market. 
uh, all I can think was interest rates went up and destroyed, you know, real demand for, you know, infrastructure and these other assets, which destroyed stock as well as interest rates being very high. Uh, you know, it's like, so, you know, th- there's a possibility that buying commodity stocks doesn't work. You know, there's certainly, you know, a risk that uh, I'm worried about. Uh, and I can tell you for a fact, there aren't very many food stocks out there. No. No, but you get, I mean, there, there are fertilizer stocks. I mean, there's, there's some decent fertilizer stocks you can buy. But, but what about this, the Western infrastructure spend, which I'm sure we're going to get? I mean, in the US, I'm sure that we're going to get. Is that enough to pick up the slack from China? I mean, it, my, my gut is nowhere near enough, but is it enough to put a floor under some of these commodity prices, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, the numbers they're talking certainly are. It's just, you know, the problem, you know, I keep, my problem is I keep coming back to, well, you know, people want growth and they want employment, but they also don't tolerate, they don't want to have very high food prices or high food inflation. Because that for me is where the politics, if you think about central banks as politicians, which they are, yeah, right, they are basically just following the political wind, right? You know, at the moment, the political wind is we want to spend and we, want, we don't like what we've been doing for the last 10 years. And so they accommodate that. But the winds could change very quickly and certainly was fascinating again, this is in China, is that uh, during the coronavirus, everyone was like, we don't want loose policies anymore. We don't want inflation. You know, prices are too high. And they've been pushing a very, very tight, relatively very tight monetary policy. And so I wonder, it's for me, you know, the numbers don't make sense in the States uh, for their spend if they need to raise interest rates. They just make no sense whatever. I mean, Either tax rates have to go up yeah. or spending has to come down or, you know, or they got to stop giving people stimulus checks. You know, there's, you know, they, those numbers don't work at even 2% on a 10-year. It's not that high. Right. You know, so something's going to give. Well, maybe, maybe it's the currency. Maybe they do keep the stimulus checks in an attempt to, in an attempt to bring the dollar down significantly because that maybe is the, is the escape valve. I don't know. That, that's my bet. My bet would be the dollar tanks. Um, you know, it looks about right. Positioning looks right for that. Um, and like I said, you know, the play, the guys are lending the money. If they start getting inflation, they'll stop wanting to lend the money. Um, and then, you know, so the flow stops. Yeah. This, you know, like I said the, it seems to me like when food prices go up, it stops the Ponzi scheme. You know, it's one thing I, f- I find sort of interesting. I, I'm going to, I want to share this with you uh, in particular, Russell, because of the, your viewpoint about, um, sort of the, the, the perverse demand destruction that comes up as a consequence of higher prices. When I first got in the investment business in um, the early 80s and started running money in, in 82, the man that was my mentor had been running money since the late 60s. And I was always trying to understand how life was and, and, and how things evolved. And I'll never forget, this was probably in 82 or 83, he explained to me that when the initial uh, oil price shock took place due to the uh, oil embargo, and the price of oil spiked up. A common refrain then was, "Well, it's actually deflationary because it's going to destroy so much demand." And obviously, it didn't play out that way. And we can't compare then to now. But I remember thinking at the time, "Well, how crazy were they?" You know, even though I could understand the logic. 
in that scenario, th- that demand destruction didn't stop the inflation that was underway. And as I say, the period was different. I've always carried that thought around and this, and lately I've been thinking more about it because it seems to me that it's a rather common refrain that prices can't really go up because if prices go up, demand will be hurt and the world economy is so fragile it can't take that. So I, I don't know the answer where that leads, but I just thought I would share that with you and, and, and see what your uh, response to you know that little story is. Yeah, well, you know, the 60s are a very different environment. And it, it sort of comes back again to this, you know, what we're starting to see. And it certainly is obvious with what we see in the States is that when, you know, if governments want uh, inflation, they want spending, it's simple. You just give money to poor people because, you know, you, you're guaranteed to spend it. You know, when you give tax cuts to corporates, um, you know, which yeah. is, helps the stock market and just ends up, going nowhere just ends up back in the system but if actually you give money to poor people they'll go spend it um and so you know in the 60s there was a very sort of strict minimum wage rose from inflation you know unions were strong and wages were going up i mean i talked to my so my uncle who um i think worked for lloyd's in started working for lloyd's in 1970 or something like that maybe or maybe 60, something like that. But he was telling me back in London then, you used to get monthly pay increases. Uh, yeah. You know, I tell, my, I tell my staff that story and they look at me going, that sounds great. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they would think that would be the best thing ever. Uh, they, if, you know, I can guarantee you, if we were like, they would be thinking that is a fantastic idea. Whereas I think of that and go, oh yeah, that would be not good not good at all um and so it's like i think it's you know partly you know again what i think is fascinating about that is is in the 60s you know when you look at the food inflation food inflation being rising that whole period and kept going up right so that oil shock you know just kept making wage and 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 inflation go up the oil shock of the 2000s right only only produced food inflation very late in the sort of 07, so 08, 09, and then came off again, and again in 11, and then came off again. And, and, you know, you haven't seen any real prices go up. I mean, the one of the most amazing charts you can do, and I, and I think this might answer your question, Bill, is if you look at wheat in Swiss franc terms, right? So you're losing a strong currency, you're getting rid of like the crazy 70s from that. Wheat in Swiss franc terms is down 80% from 1973. Eight zero, right? It's an incredible chart to watch, yeah. you know, to see. 80%. And then the Swiss had inflation in the 60s and 70s. They've never had inflation since, even when the oil price went up, right? And they also used to have wage inflation back then. And so, you know, like I said, we've all been trained to think that oil is it because that's what happened in the 70s. What I'm saying is oil was reacting to food inflation because you remember, the, you know, basically the Saudis and the OPEC, they sell oil to buy wheat. Yeah. Right? And so they're seen there in the 60s going, oh, man, we're buying less and less wheat with our oil. And this oil, you know, what's going on? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I, you, 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 
is you have to reimagine the world we came from because I think we we're all stuck in this mindset of how what we've been taught was what how the world worked in the 70s. And even though it hasn't worked like that for the last 25, 30 years, right, if you include the Japan experience, we're still stuck in this mindset. It's crazy. Yeah. You, know, you need a different way of thinking. And this is my idea, which I think is, I don't know if it's correct. I mean, that's what makes it so interesting and so exciting is there's no guarantees here. It's no, it's not like Bitcoin that's definitely going to a million <laughs> guarantee. <laughs> right, right. You had to do it, didn't you? I've you seen had the to chart. Do it. You had to do it. You had to do it. It's, you know, look, it, it's, hey, it, could be. It, it is fascinating, Russell. And, and, and it is, to, to your point, it is an entirely new way for people to think. I mean, I'm, I'm, going to go walk away from this with with so much to think about i'm about to get in a car for a few hours and i know that i'm going to be sitting turning all this over in my head um because it does you know it it makes sense uh and and it's not uh, it's not a a kind of a a kind of approach that i've looked i I get the commodities versus equities trade but this food price inflation wage price inflation um it does make a lot of sense and you throw in the in the japan component and um you know, it's it's really given me something to think about. So, I, you know, I, I, I thank you for that because uh, I'd, I needed some, some really serious thinking to do. So thanks for that. My pleasure. Um, listen, Russell, uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a fascinating hour and 20-odd minutes. Um, just let people know where they can follow you because this is obviously something that is really just getting started. And so I'm, I'm sure that you're going to write in in the way that you do about this going forward. Are you on Twitter? I don't think, I think, I feel like I've seen you on Twitter somewhere. Oh, uh, compliance has told me that Twitter is just for social, ah, social okay. stuff. So I have. I understand. But- I know there's other guys who are completely marketing, but uh, I've been told I can only use that for social stuff. So please don't look for me on Twitter. Okay, could, could you I do me a favor? Could, could you ask your guys to call Tesla and tell them the same thing? Well, you know, he's selling something different. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, listen. Thank you very much for spending this hour with us. It's been it's been fascinating. You got you've got my head on another spin. So I I, I do thank you for that because it's always a, a good way to be left off for a conversation. Great, good. Well, you know, we've all got lots of free time to think about stuff. Exactly right. And uh, and uh, may you may may the haircut gods bless you again soon. I hope so. Thank you. All right, Russell. Take care. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye. Well, Bill, I have to say. Um, that that kind of surprised me. That came out of nowhere. That whole conversation. Uh, but I found it absolutely fascinating. It really has given me an awful lot to think about. Well, I think um, I actually had 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 a, a chance to read about his thoughts on food inflation, so um, it wasn't uh, completely new to me. I've been been thinking about it. Um, well, the one thing I'm struck by is that, um, especially in talking about this in the historical perspective, is is how few people are in, in, left in the investment world who have even who experienced any of it either as a, a, a adult or a, a, um, sorry, uh, as a teenager, an adult or, 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 and how few were in the financial business then and can remember how the, the pieces went together and what happened. Because I think a lot of people have a perception of what they think happened, but unless you were kind of there, you don't really know any of the nuances. Yeah. And um, I think he makes good points about what, uh, food inflation might do um, to upset the apple cart. And obviously no one's really worried about that. I think in general, there's lip service paid to the fact we may have inflation, but I don't really think there's a lot of real belief that it could actually happen since it hasn't really 
happened in so long. And so I think a lot of arguments get tortured to the point that, um, you know, that no matter what it is, it can't really turn into inflation. The, the good news is by the end of this year, we ought to know. I mean, I think most people think there's going to be an inflation scare at least, and we can mm-hmm. see how that plays out. And then we can start to see if, uh, if it's more than that. Yeah. You know, what I find interesting is, is you're right in that, but, but I'm seeing more and more smart people who generally tend to invest ahead of the pack starting to, to kind of put this inflation trade on And maybe they're doing it just for the scare, or maybe they do think that, that this, this could be a proper secular shift we're about to see, but it's certainly, it certainly becomes something that's not just something to worry about in the future, but it's something that maybe you can position for now and not be wrong for too long. I don't know. It, it feels to me like something has changed. I've, I've noticed. I've noticed the same thing. Um, and 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 then even on our podcast, I mean, you have thoughtful people who were bullish bonds forever. Uh, we've interviewed a couple of them, and yeah. they're they're they, they've flipped. And uh, Russell seems to have come at it from a slightly different perspective. And, you know, I think he's concerned about it all. I don't know exactly how adamant his viewpoint is on it right now. I I think if there's going to be inflation, you have to invest for the scare. (laughs) But if it's only a scare, you can jettison the position. So I think probably that's how people are thinking about it. Well, and the admission ticket's not expensive. If you look at valuations yeah. of, of what you might perceive to be inflation beneficiaries, they're not expensive. I mean, um, probably one of the more hated groups is the miners, and we've talked about them many times. Yep. And a, a lot of these companies we're reporting are trading at 10 or 12 times earnings. Um, now, a lot depends on what the end product, i.e. the price of gold, turns out to be. But if you think gold's not going to collapse and could go up, then the the, the entry price to, to pay for the scare and then see what happens next isn't expensive. And I suspect there are other, you know, uh, sorts of commodities that have the same sort of characteristics. Although, as he said, the, it's hard to get long food via equities. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah, there are there are a few companies, but they're, they're, they even those are fairly richly valued for the most part. From what I've seen. Well, we'll see. I mean, mate, another another fascinating um, episode, another interesting conversation. Um, all that remains is to thank everybody for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. If you don't do so already, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And you can find me at FleckCap. At FleckCap. Yes, you can. All right, mate. Well, until next time, my friends, I'll talk to you soon. All righty, matey. See you. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.